The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. I'm a rolling dice, just like in my animes. And tonight, we're talking about anime role-playing games. Specifically, tabletop role-playing games that are made to reflect anime, or have an anime style, or are connected with anime and manga in some way, basically. Um, there have been many attempts over the years to produce games that simulate anime in one form or another or take anime style aesthetics and tonight we're going to talk about some of those and how successful they've been and what the better ones are and what the not so good ones are so don i think the place to start out with this particular topic is is probably to define what is an anime style or manga style like what does that actually mean (laughs) wow see that's where you get the uh the big issue because the term anime is just the word, colloquial word for Japanese cartoon. Mm-hmm. And Japanese animation covers a lot of topics. Like you're talking everything from, say, like goofy kid shows to outright porn, uh, serious drama, a comedy, wackiness, sci-fi action. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's really hard to pin it down to one thing. But I think if you're talking, say, for gaming... When we talk anime, we're mostly going to be looking at stuff that would be like your uh, seinen, mm-hmm. your shonen, your shoujo, and maybe some jose stuff, which would be, again, the nerdly stuff. Things mm-hmm. think, things like your science fiction and that. And I think if you're going to say what makes it anime, it would be, I'm going to say, like, bold action, like in a superhero story. Mm-hmm. You have... A lot of drama and and melodrama usually mixed in together. And one of the biggest things that makes it kind of a little different is there's more of a character focus, uh, even to the point that a lot of the action stuff, it's not the character's ability that dictates their success. It's kind of their, their, their drive, their spirituality, their emotion, that kind of thing. Okay. Okay, I, I think that works. That's that's a much more detailed version than I would have actually come up with. I would have just said it's probably a, a game, at least in this case. Uh, a, we're talking if we're talking specifically about games. It's probably a game that attempts, or something else, that t- attempts to simulate the style or feel or aesthetic of anime or manga. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's, at least that's what an anime role-playing game is anyway. You described anime and manga, and I would say that that's, yeah. that uh, I, I would say your definition is correct. I would just say, but when it comes to gaming, that's probably what we're talking about today. Yeah, I think you're right. The one confounding variable, and this is where I, I added that bit about the character's drive, mm-hmm. is in a lot of anime over Western stuff, and this is something that, that it's hard, it, it comes up in the games in different ways. The one sticking point that we don't do so much Mm -hmm. 
is, I'm going to use the example that, that we tend to do, is like the old 80s kind of like Karate Kid Rocky comeback. Mm-hmm. That for Japanese stuff, that is crazy popular. Even more to the point like, okay, so Rocky's on his last legs and then Adrian comes up and tells him she loves him and that gives him the drive to get up and swing a bit more until he gets his ass knocked out because I'm talking about the first movie. Mm-hmm. Spoiler. But, but in the Japanese stuff, you see, because the first example I can think of, and you might remember, mm-hmm. uh, was the original Bubblegum Crisis when they're fighting the, the three super, super Booma. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prissa's getting her ass handed to her by these mm-hmm. things. And then, like, as soon as the her, her buddies show up, she gets that, like, second wind mm-hmm. and gets more determined. And as she's trying to fight past them to get, like, the upgraded suits that they have, her battered old suit is apparently good enough to slap them around a little bit to get out of the way. Yeah, yeah, just enough for, to get those Joe giant evil robots out of the way. And then suddenly she can, she can, it kind of falls apart. You're talking about where it falls apart on her and then she jumps into the new suit. yeah. But yeah. her, but it's the idea that she was getting her ha- ass handed to her in the first, and you see that all the time. That where the hero gets that sudden, you know, determination, and his super weapon does more damage now for some reason. Like it's it, just really more accurate for some reason. <laughs> no, usually there, there's often that big, you know, power up burst of energy and stuff, because it's it's that idea that because it's so character focused. The mm-hmm. hardware is almost an afterthought. Well, I would take that a step further. I would say that in most anime, the hardware and manga, the hardware is something like a baseball or a sword or whatever. It ultimately is just an extension of the character, almost like the character is putting some of their chi, some of their soul into it. Because remember, to the Japanese, it is. Like everything around us technically is kind of sort of alive right. or at least has a spirit of some degree. And so even physical objects, when you put your soul into them, they kind of become an extension of you. Okay. And that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So that's why suddenly her suit can like have that little extra bit. And I mean, it's not, um, it's not that like American stuff never does things like that. Um, I remember, here's, I'm going to give you a really weird one, uh, literally, because I still remember, uh, there are stories about from, uh, the old weird war comics mm-hmm. where stuff like that would happen. Um, there's a famous one I remember with the GI robot, for example, and they're relying on the GI robot to get them through this like Japanese ambush in the Pacific and they're, they're fighting their way through in that and the robot ends up like carrying the one guy home and then they look at the robot and they realize that its power pack was gone a long time ago. It got blown off. Mm-hmm. But because it was a member of the team, it didn't give up. It kept fighting until the end. Or, or you could also say God was, you know, supporting them or whatever, depending on what interpretation you want to give. But Americans right. do occasionally do that kind of thing. But yeah, it's usually given a like Christian significance, like you know, God was an angel helped you or whatever kind of thing, rather than it was your spirit or your chi fighting to the end. Yeah, and we tend not to kind of do it as uh, blatantly. Mm-hmm. As a lot of, like, the the Japanese, like, nerdly arts do. I think it's reasonable why they do that. Because remember, most anime and manga are based, especially if we're talking about seinen and shonen stuff, right? We're talking about the stuff for young guys and everything like that. It's always Mm -hmm. aspirational. And it's always meant to be encouraging the audience. And so it's like, it's that idea that if you're... Because remember, going back to what you said about Rocky, 
Okay? It's, you know, Adrian whispers in his ear, Rocky, I love you. And he's like, and he gets back up and he like fights again, although, you know, he loses. Um, The point is, is that it's (laughs) when you're fighting for someone else, when you're fighting for something else, that's something that's greater than you, that gives you more power. It gives you more strength as a person and lets you have that extra oomph you need to like get over the hump. That's really what that is. It's like when your chips are down and you remember that, you know, I'm fighting for my kid's sister who like needs this money to get get the operation. So she's going to get out of the wheelchair. Very anime. Um, they, <laughs> you know, that's the moment we're superhuman and you'll surpass yourself. It's it's true. And, and but like I say, the Japanese have turned it into an art because not yeah. only will they they do that, they'll extend that again to like hardware because I think like you say, hardware becomes part of your identity. Mm-hmm. Um They'll add the glowing aura and the swishy background, and then sometimes you turn blonde when when you do it. If your power gets over nine thousand, that is. But yeah, but that's that's a side <laughs> effect of Dragon Ball becoming the most popular thing in the history of mankind. Yeah, I, I, there's pre Dragon Ball is. and post Dragon Ball. Yeah, because I think what you see happen is is Dragon Ball solidifies all of the uh, conventions to that effect, and that's where they become tropes. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember right around that time, there's a gag about that in the opening to a perfectual Earth Defense Force. Mm-hmm. With the one, the the two main guys are such baseball fans that in the opening sequence, the hero gets his like SDF one baseball bat and <laughs> blows a hole in the moon with it. <laughs> right. Which which was a which was a parody of that kind of thing. Which again, as I say, I think at that point it was it had been perfected that it was starting to become a trope. And yeah. that was why you started seeing that. Yeah, no, no. I think you're totally right. I think that's exactly the kind of thing that's happening. Um, <laughs> and yet, the Japanese have been at it for a while. I mean, they, you know, we think of anime as being more, well, I, I don't want to say an 80s thing, but it kind of uh, was, mostly when fans are thinking about anime, they're usually thinking about 80s anime. Uh, so and yeah. it's because the 70s stuff was a little bit different, but there was a lot of stuff done in the 70s and some of it, it wasn't all, you know, Gatchaman and Space Cruiser Yamato. They did a lot of other stuff too. And that influenced what came later on. Yeah. Cause that's, that's the, a lot of it when we got it here, it was Westernized. So they took some of these things out, mm-hmm. but again, and this ties in with how we started this, that it's difficult to peg down what you mean when you say anime. Cause I remember in the 70s as a kid, and mm-hmm. I, I think I mentioned this on the show before, the French channels used to show tons of Japanese stuff, and they didn't just show the action stuff. So as a kid, because going to Catholic school, we had to do French immersion, mm-hmm. so I could follow I could follow a cartoon in French. And I watched a lot of like the soap opera shows and some of the comedies mm-hmm. and, and the dramas, and it's 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 right. It's like you're like you say. That stuff comes back later on. I, th- I think we we talked about this in in uh, the the giant robot episode. Mm-hmm. That all of the soap opera kind of shows and all of the dramas had made such an impact on people because they were a little different. Mm-hmm. When you get to the sixties, when they came out, they were different. So when you get to the end of the seventies, the eighties, the kids had grown up that grew up on that, and that was why when you look at like say the real robot shows, most of them are dramas. Mm that happen to have robots and it's because they're taking stuff. Everybody's thinking, well, Ashton Ojo is such a great show. Why can't I do that? But with robots, cause I think robots are great too. Well, robots are what's paying the bills in most of these yeah. cases. <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, let, let's face it. I mean, they're toy commercials for the most part. And they've got the toy company saying, look, as long as you put robots in it, you can do whatever you want. And so yeah. the guy who really wants to make Ashton Ojo says, okay, I'll do that, but I'll make a show about giant robots and they're mostly boxing each other or like, you know, has tragic drama in it. And mm-hmm. you get Yoshiyuki Tomino. <laughs> At least for the tragic drama anyway. Not the, I don't think he ever did one about giant boxing robots. Although I believe there was one. I know there was at least one super robot one that was a giant robot boxer. And I think that there might have been a... I think I, there was actually I, kind of a giant robot boxer series. Are you think Was it Diapolon? Yeah, I think it? that's it. Yeah, maybe. Oh, don't, was was Diapolon more of a football show though? Uh, kind of. Go Wapper was like that too, that they all turned into football guys. In their in their alternate identity. Oh, you mean goddamn Go Wapper Five? You mean that show? <laughs> yes, that one. <laughs> goddamn Go Wapper Five? Okay. Sure. Now I got the theme song stuck in my head. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. And if, if folks want to know why you know why we're laughing and why I keep repeating the name Goddamn Go Wapper Five, you would have to actually go listen to our Giant Robots episode, our Giant Super Robots episode, and you'll understand the joke. Although it's just because Rob Broy loves saying "Goddamn Go Wapper Five because that's the natural name of the show. Yeah, and if you see the show, you, you won't understand. There, there's that too. God yeah. Damn it. All right. So yeah, I guess so. And also to add another level to what we're talking about here, because we're not even to the game stuff yet. Um, <laughs> each decade of Japanese animation has its own style. And its own tone and its own everything. Like, if we're talking about mecha stuff, we're usually talking about stuff that was influenced by the stuff from the 80s. Yeah. Usually. Unless we're talking about, like, the very early... uh, Well, there is one exception. Uh, If we're talking about Mechton, first edition, that's Mm -hmm. actually a super robot role-playing game for the most part. Yeah. It's not until we get to Mechton 2 that it becomes Zeta Gundam, the role-playing game. (laughs) Yeah, cause cause that starts bumping into the idea too when you get to 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 games. Mm-hmm. Uh, tabletop role playing games, because of the idea of of fairness and balance, the rules tend to be fairly specific. Mm-hmm. Even the more narrative ones, because we're going to get into that hardcore later on. There tends to be what rules there are very kind of detailed and specific, and that's why representing, yeah, what we're calling that anime feel is really difficult because things in, in like a Japanese cartoon typically go off the rails at some point. Mm-hmm, true. Like that's that idea that the big final confrontation with the main villain, the hero gets so angry that even if we're doing like a show that up until now was realistic about, you know, like, like kids in grade three that were arguing over marbles and that final confrontation where, little bibli has just been pushed to his limits he's still gonna knock down a building or something in the fist fight like like that kind of thing happens and it's hard to deal with that in a game Mm -hmm. because it's done for dramatic effect in a show Mm -hmm. but games are running a good role-playing game is like writing backwards right and that's is where in a if i'm writing i can fudge the entire universe uh, if it plays out well in my story. Mm-hmm. In a role-playing game, I I can kind of do that, but it's much harder because everybody is, is painfully aware of the rules of the universe because that's what the actual mechanics of the game are. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I f- if I fudge it too much as game master, it really goes outside the the scope of of the game. And it can be cool and entertaining, but the problem that you do is you've now sort of changed everybody's understanding of the universe that they know that this can happen. Mm-hmm. And because games even though you're not competing against each other, there's always uh, at least a little competitiveness. I'm trying to solve the adventure, catch the villain. Oh yeah. Uh, I want I want my character to progress. So in a story, I can just say little Billy got so angry that he did whatever. If you ever seen a Christmas story when when Ralphie finally beats up the 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 bad kid because he loses his mind, eh? Mm-hmm. They played that up like super dramatic, and you can do that in a story, and it's funny and entertaining. And then life goes back to normal. We don't expect that Ralphie's going to do it again. Mm-hmm. But because gaming has that strategic element, whether you want it to or not, whether you're the most like hipster narrativist gamer or not, it's still there in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Once you set that precedent, you've actually changed the universe. So you don't want to really be doing that unless there's an understanding of it happening, which means I need that dramatic, you know, seinen burst to be worked into the system. Mm-hmm which is difficult to do to maintain any kind of cohesive um not narrative but challenge level for the game and it gets weird because once you put that in it's now gameable mm-hmm. and it will happen different from the movies like if at the dramatic moment I can double my damage for the big final villain fight mm-hmm. In a movie, it's understandable because when Rhea Murrow and Char Aznab will finally face off after 40, 40 uh, episodes of you know teasing each other kind of thing, mm-hmm. it's understandable why they're putting more into it, why this is so so ferocious for them. But in a game, you'll have players trying to do that at every opportunity just for the bonus. Yep. And, and instead of like a dramatic conflict, their characters will just turn into the ultimate Karen because every dickweed and mook they meet into, they meet up with, they're going to try to make that encounter overly dramatic just to get those bonuses. <laughs> so now we know how Karens happen in real right, life, right? right. It's, yep. It, it, it's not that they're upset that you know, like, like you're, you're. Uh, they have to wait five minutes and want to see the manager. It's their their player in the cosmos is trying to get those bonuses to to overtake the manager's willpower with with their force of spirit. So that's why they're upping the ante on the drama level. Oh, Jesus, right? And <laughs> that's true. Drama is one of those things that games just do not simulate very well overall. Like they're just not that good at it. Yeah, most most don't, and it's because. Um, you have to kind of allow for the rules to break. And from a participant mm-hmm. point of view, drama re- requires that you purposely put yourself at a disadvantage. That's true. Yeah. And again, a lot of players can't do that. One of the best examples of that, and it's one of the games I have on my list of, of Japanese kind of inspired, is when you got to a Mekton and Cyberpunk and they did the life path. Mm-hmm where you roll up your character's history and you roll up like their friends and enemies and ex-lovers and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's an attempt to f- infuse that into a game because that's forcing you to think about these things. Yes. Yeah. And that was a great little thing. I, I always loved that about those games. Mm-hmm. And if, if you played the original Mekton, the chart was really kind of 
specific and vague at the same time. It was very, very late 70s anime. Let's put it that it, way. It was because one of the things that we used, we used to when you played, because again, to add that drama, mm-hmm. everybody rolled on it. What you rolled, you got. Yeah. Because as I recall, the original one uses the same chart for anybody who's connected to you in any capacity. It's kind of the same sub chart for who they are and who they were before they became what they are now in right. your life. Mm-hmm. So you could roll like um, Arch Enemy is ex-lover who's a relative. <laughs> yes. Yes, you could. And and you could roll a, a, a and, and this is like accidentally progressive for the day. You could roll like, you know, current lovers, the same sex and stuff like that. And we used to keep it in because like yep. you say. Mm, why not? When you and when you look at like seventies anime, that kind of stuff, like the 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 um, the interpersonal relations, they were they were starting to expand and experiment with. Mm-hmm. So you would see all kinds of weird weird things like that, and that's where like the later you know sexual deviancy comes out of that idea of playing with those kind of like relationships. Oh yeah, yeah they yeah they were definitely into sexual experimentation back in those days in kids cartoons that was that was the interesting part yeah and it wasn't necessarily super explicit but it would be that 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 idea that you could you could mix things up it wasn't you know when it came to sex and sexuality it wasn't as george carlin used to joke the good old fashioned man on top get it over with quick type yep that they would play with that mm-hmm. and and again it was it was out of that sense of drama like the 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 jose stuff which is the um like the female oriented stories, but for an older audience would do a lot of that. Cause the oh, idea yeah. of a forbidden, the idea of a forbidden love, you can only do he's rich. She's poor so many times. So they had to come up with what are some other takes on that forbidden love thing. And then because they were being a drama, you'd get more into it. It wouldn't just be an affectation. And then that led to such like weird, innovative, interesting novel characters that when you had the big animation boom later on, mm-hmm. those ideas got infused into everything. So you would do action stories that would have these like deep, you know, like dramatic relationship kind of things in them and, and that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And, and that's hard to put into a game because again, that idea of um, a dramatic relationship requires that your character fails at a lot of stuff in that relationship. Yes, that's true. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the relationships are definitely about failure. There's no question well, that. That's where the drama comes in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Success too. There has to be success too for it to be a relationship. But there's a lot of failure <laughs> in relationships too. Um, that happens along, especially certain stages of the romance or, or relationship of any kind, really. Every time that that kind of thing comes up, I think of that one, a Karima campaign. Mm-hmm. Which one? Where It was the one where the, uh, I think it might have been Towers had said that he wanted to infuse some drama. He said, can my character have a girlfriend? Mm-hmm. And we said, sure. And everybody said, that's an idea. We, that's a whole other thing we can add to this. Like, you know, like drama, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Comedy, all that comes up. So we did that and we rolled up their girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And their girlfriends, the, 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 the stats for the girl were massive. Right. I think you told me about this. Yeah. 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 Like right across, like their characters were all decent to mediocre, but oh my God, their girlfriends were unstoppable. Like for anything, right? They, they were they were all like like supermodel attractive. They were all like you know Einstein brilliant. They were Bruce Lee physical tough. And the thing, two questions came out of that. The first immediate one was, 
can I play my girlfriend instead? And I was like, no, no, that's... <laughs> and then the second one, the problem we had, which is where the drama came from, was why are these people dating your characters? <laughs> you guys are losers. They're awesome. What? Why are they with you? And that was where the drama came from because it was... The one guy, I forget what it was. The one guy had come up. It might have been, it might have been Doke. That mm-hmm. the reason his girlfriend was with his characters because he basically totally lied about how awesome he was. Right. And then every so often, she'd be like, well, I'll come pick you up at work. And he's like, oh my God, no. <laughs> and we had all these, because the, there were games where, I think it was Doke. One of them was trying to keep his girlfriend impressed so they the rest of them would have to play along with his wacky schemes to look like a hero (laughs) right (laughs) there was there was another one the shtick was that she just like totally felt sorry for him right that the relationship she only went out on that first date because she thought he was such a weenie and so pathetic but then she kind of like got to know him a little bit and he's an okay guy and and fell for him that way we had all these like that would have been great in a movie that came out of, of this this weird rules thing <laughs> that's very seinfeld <laughs> well no because everybody in seinfeld is a dick in the relationship only last one episode uh not always but they're constantly lying to other people about you know what they really do <laughs> and their relationships and such so that's what i mean like i mean that's pretty much all of i think it was george's relationships pretty much it's him lying he's uh, like a a uh marine biologist or a doctor or whatever or a veterinarian or whatever it will take to get the women in bed that's kind of his shtick wow okay yeah that well that was definitely that one guy's character <laughs> so it's like no no you can't come to my office because it's being renovated right now yes and uh <laughs> that would be fun to play that could be entertaining and so yeah right. it sounds like you guys were getting a little bit tired of the old you know, you know, beat them ups. And so you started adding some drama to it, which is exactly what I think was happening with the anime as well. I think these guys didn't want to just write beat em ups. They wanted to actually write dramatic stories. They wanted to do something else. Yeah. Makes sense. And so that's what they did. And yeah. So, and so if you wanted to put that in a role-playing game, that's pretty tricky though, especially if we're talking about a role-playing game, that's not even being played by Japanese people. Yeah. Um, at which yeah. at which point I think we should probably start talking about the games themselves. Okay. All right. So, um, so you mentioned before the show that you actually have several different categories that you put these games into. Could you tell us about the categories? Yeah. Well, we were talking about that. There's different. There's kind of different uh, aspects mm-hmm. that would mark something as 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 anime related. I think you had. Uh, I did. Well, I think we, we'll start with your four. Okay. Think- yeah, I've got, I basically came up with four different categories you can put uh, anime or anime-esque role-playing games into. All right. My first one would be an anime simulation. So that would be a game that was specifically made to simulate the anime aesthetic, the anime style, to, to simulate something that is like an anime role-playing game. So that's, that's its job. And we'll go through examples later on, but the you know a classic example of this might be um, Teenagers from Outer Space, which is one, or Mechton, which we also mentioned, both by Artasaurian Games, who were huge anime fans back. They were kind of ahead of their time in a lot of ways, um, and yeah. So you got uh, Teenagers from Outer Space was meant to simulate uh, Lum Yuritsei Atsura, and it was meant to simulate that kind of uh, wacky. Wacky anime teenagers kind of game, comedy games, or comedy TV manga and anime of the time. Um, yeah. Mostly stuff by Rumiko Takahashi. I, I might say, mm-hmm. 
because teenagers, there's there's kind of a thing in, in my notes about that. We'll have to come back. Mechton definitely. Mm-hmm. Mechton was made each like 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 you were saying right. earlier. The original Mechton is the super robot. Yep. Mechton two is is the real robot. Teenagers from Outer Space has a weird thing that it's still very Western ish. But again, they still he they were, came from a foundation of okay, we want to simulate that type of story based on the cartoons that we're watching. That was still their intent when they actually put Teenage Mutant Space together. And there's all so much of it in there that's right out of anime. Now you can argue about how successful they were in a lot <laughs> of different ways, and we will in a minute. But let's just leave. The, okay, anyway, so we'll yeah. leave that on the table. My second category would be um, what I would call anime friendly systems. Which these are systems or games that work really well for simulating anime style stories, but aren't actually made for it. They were usually made for play another style of play, most often superhero gaming, but there are other exceptions as well. And so these are games that just by sheer coincidence have a very anime aesthetic, um, whether that's intentional or unintentional. Often I would say it's unintentional. Doesn't matter. They still work really well for simulating anime games. Um, the most classic, and you're going to hear this name a lot in, the, in this episode, <laughs> is uh, DC Heroes 3rd Edition. And 2nd Edition too works too. But the 80s Mayfair DC Heroes uh, role-playing game is, yes, it is the, it is the gold <laughs> standard for anime simulation, anime-friendly systems, basically. And we'll talk more about that later. Probably so much that your ears will start bleeding. <laughs> All right, so um, next on my list, I would call put Japanese Imports. And so these are games that are actually kind of, they're basically anime simulations that are directly from Japan, that they're actual, these are actual games from Japan. And because they're from Japan by almost by default, whether they intended it or not, usually they did intend it. They actually simulate the style of anime to some degree or another, or have an anime aesthetic, something along those lines. Um, I would put into this category things like uh, there's a, a Japanese game called Tenra Bansho Zero, which most of you have never heard of probably, um, that was one of the most popular games in Japan, tabletop role-playing games in Japan, and does, I believe, have an English version, doesn't it, Don? There's, there, yes, it does. Yeah, there's an English version of it. It never took off over here, but over there. But there's also an actual literal Gundam RPG from Japan that, that was brought over, uh, or at least fan translations of it exist anyway. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a few others. There's two. There is two? There's two. Yeah, because the one I think you're thinking of that there's fan translations was it was a uh, ironically an Artalsorian uh, joint mm-hmm. with guy with uh, Bandai, right? Yep. And there's also another Gundam role playing game that was brought over by Japan from you because you mailed me a copy many many years yes, ago. Yes, yes, yep. A- and that's a straight straight from Japan thing because the in Japanese, the, yeah, yeah. So it took me ten years to get a handle on how this game works my japanese isn't that good but Mm -hmm. but but it's it's definitely yeah those those, because there's there's Uh, i'm not done there's one more system there is one more category yeah okay okay let's just do the other category come back okay (laughs) then there's what we would call and this is going to sound weird i refer to them as japanese reversals or reverse imports so this is an american game that was Sent to Japan, the Japanese animeized it to make it appealing for a Japanese audience, and then it was brought back over to America in the animeized form. And you might be going, what? And the answer is yes, these do <laughs> exist. And the most classic example is um, the Tunnels and Trolls game, 
which was a D&D ripoff called Tunnels and Trolls, and they exported it to Japan. The Japanese did their thing with it, changed it a fair bit, and then it was re-imported as Tunnels and Trolls Anime Edition or something like that, they called it. And so the Japanese version is available, I believe, in English. And yes. I think it is anyway, or at least there's fan translations oh, of it. Hmm? Oh, no, it's, it's officially available in English. Okay, you can yes. get it off of a drive through RPG. Awesome. So there we go. So that would be a, it's like playing a reverse, a reverse or no card or trap card or something. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> it's a reverse card where we sent something over and they sent it back with, and they sent it back with big eyes, small mouth and, um, and, you know, uh, rainbow colored hair, basically. <laughs> um, so those are my four attempts or four categories that I thought we could put anime role-playing games into or anime style role-playing games. Okay. What do you got, Don? Actually, because your 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 yours is 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 remarkably similar to mine, I would. Uh, Do you want to just use kinda, mine then? Yeah, because well, because we basically will. Because the way that I looked at it was your first two categories. I look at um, kind of the presentation and play of the game, mm -hmm. which is exactly what you're getting at. Yep. Your two, your two of the back and forth. Mm -hmm. I'd kind of your. You, you you got a good idea because it explains something. Mm -hmm. Japanese role playing games overall tend to be different from ours in a couple of respects, mm -hmm. and it's that they tend to be um, again more what we would call narrativist. They use simpler rules, and they 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 seek to to formulate interaction amongst participants shouldn't we talk about that when we actually talk about them like japanese import games or do you want to talk about japanese import games now i just i just want to kind of clear up what a japanese game is like because i think okay. it's going to come back when we get talking about different games mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay sure because they tend to do that they tend to do um remarkably high production standards mm -hmm. it's true the books look really good and they apologize a lot like the the rules themselves will have sections that explain here's why we do this rule like this a lot like we do it in our stuff but japanese games that's a big part of of at least the ones that i've seen right from japan there's always these big sections that explain why we do it like this in this game whereas other games it was yeah roll a five why shut up just do it that was kind of how our role-playing games worked for a very long time. Mm -hmm. But they're not Japanese. In Japan, you have to say, roll a five, please, pretty please, sugar on top, and I promise good things will happen. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've you've played Tenra Bansho Zero then. Oh, okay. Well, we'll talk more about that in a second. All right, so let's start going through them. So, okay. So you said you had kind of narrowed down to roughly 10 games for each category because okay, we're not going to cover all the possible games that fit into this subject tonight. Okay, if we did, this podcast would end up being five hours long, at least. Um, maybe longer, actually, or in multiple parts. Because there have been a lot of attempts by anime fans to simulate anime using role-playing games over the years. And so there's... Uh, a lot of these fall into the homebrew category where a lot of people will try to animate up existing rules. Like they'll take D&D, &D, for example, and try to animate it up or... Or they'll use a generic system like the Hero System or GURPS. And it's like, okay, well, how could I animate this up? We're not going to talk about those, I don't think, are we? I, 
maybe in passing in, it might okay, come yeah. up. They might come up with this, with, I guess, with the anime-friendly systems one. But yeah. generally speaking, we're going to avoid we're going to avoid those things. And also, there's been a ton, number of indie games over the years that have tried to do you know anime style things like micro games and uh, you know many different supplements for other games. It's like okay, here's how you play this game, anime style, etc. I think we're mostly going to focus on games that are dedicated to trying to be anime or again work very well with anime style overall. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think the other the other confounding variable too is that Japan produces a lot of tabletop role playing games. Yes, they do. And um, like my personal experience with them is fairly limited. And mine too. Even though I was over there for a bit, it's still pretty limited because I never actually sat down with a bunch of Japanese gamers. I wish I did, but it wasn't an option because I couldn't find any that spoke English at the time because uh, I kind of lived in a backwater Japanese city. Anyway. <laughs> Neither here nor there. I will not mention the name of the city just because I don't want to disparage it at all because it was a very nice place overall. All right. So it just didn't have many, much in the way of gamers. All right. So let's talk about anime sims then. Let's go back to our little argument. So now you said that Teenage Mutant Ninja Space, you feel, does not actually present an anime simulation game. Okay. Let's hear it. Why not? I'm going to say it's not that it doesn't, mm-hmm. but it's – I'm looking at my list here. It's got to be on my damn list. It's not that it doesn't, but Teenagers from Outer Space does a weird thing because the first and second editions of it, mm-hmm. and none of the versions, there's there's three editions, none of them are really different. Two and three are mostly kind of a stylistic change. Mm-hmm. One is different because what they did for the later ones is humans got, the idea of the game is that aliens send their kids to Earth to go to school. As exchange mostly just students, get, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... In the second and third edition, humans automatically get the power of fake out, which means you can tell an alien anything and they'll believe you, at least at first. Right, yeah, yeah. The first edition didn't have that in the rules. First and second kind of borrow from a lot of sources. That You're right, it is It is very clearly Irisei Yatsura, the role-playing game. Oh, it is, yeah. <laughs> Except the design aesthetic and kind of the backstory... Mm-hmm are still very Western. So it's, if you've ever seen like a galaxy high yeah, the cartoon, the one from the 80s, it's that it's got like a, my favorite Martian sort of vibe to it. Um, the, the characters that they, they make up the sample characters, the story characters, the background characters. It's very, again, it's very Western. Mm-hmm. When you get to third edition, third edition goes whole hog with the uh, Japanese aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Like Lum is a character. They don't call her Lum. She's she's Lum. You'll look at her and go, that's Lum in a different colored outfit. It's it's that kind of... Like, they, they, they turn right into the skid. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say it is, but it isn't, because the original one had rules that worked really good to represent it, because I think Yusei Atsuro was probably... If not the template, it was the the major influence in the way that Anne Rice was kind of an influence on Vampire the Masquerade. Mm-hmm. But they still kept the Western tethers until you get to the last one. And then the last one is, it's just Urusei Yatsura, the role-playing game. Yes, yeah, exactly. And later later supplements do that too. There was a company called, um, uh, was it A3? I think it was, yes. Was it? I think you, I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, they published a setting for it that is very, very clearly modeled on, like, Japanese cartoons and comics. Yeah, but again, that's clearly, it was our Chasaurian games. This this was their inspiration, right? 
I mean, they they were a bunch of West Coast anime fans, you know, w- you know, watching anime that they were able to get from their local Chinatown or or possibly the local Japanese uh, TV stations if they were that lucky if they were in San Fran, and they were able to they grew up on this stuff and they so they this was an early attempt to say hey you know let's do a role playing game a fun role playing game in this style. Now we should probably go into the actual way the game plays a tiny bit. We don't we're not, we don't have to go through all the stats and everything, but the key point is is that it's very very loose. Like the stats yeah. are really just there to give a little bit of structure to the game. It's it's very almost narrativist in a way, really. I mean, even the way the roles happen are are all it's <laughs> it's very loose. Very that's the only way to describe it. Like. You could pretty much make any kind of character you want. You're, it's it's almost almost uh, only a, a very small step away from um, Steve Jackson's Tune in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. They're both very similar games, and that's and hearing that will probably give you Tune. By the way, in case you've never heard of it, is the Bugs Bunny role playing game. Basically, it's it's a game yeah. for design. Trip, I'm not kidding. It's a game designed to play like Warner Brothers cartoon style stuff. If you ever want to actually run Space Jam as a uh, as a role playing game, there's literally a game for that. It exists. I assume knowing Steve Jackson, it's still probably in print too. I think you might be able to get it on uh, Drive Through RPG. You probably can. Well, at least it's yeah. You can. I don't know whether it's actually. It's probably in print. At least print on demand. Anyway, it exists. Um, so yeah, the rules are very loose, and so if you wanted. To make, you know, one person wanted to make a, um, I don't know, a tiny little fairy woman. And the other person wanted to make a giant three-headed monster. Yeah, that system will totally work for that. Because the stats are almost meaningless. So really, in the end, it's just like, oh, the character just looks like whatever you say they look like. Yeah, and they also do the thing. They don't have the variable uh, level of ability. Mm Mm-hmm that a lot of like kind of anime stuff does but it does add the effect if you remember you can roll too well yes yeah and then if you succeed by too much the game master is encouraged that chaos ensues from that yeah it's almost like a reverse critical success like a, a critical success is a negative thing not a positive thing in to in sorry teenage motor space yeah might be in tune too. I've never played, um, but yeah, that that's which which was remember the whole point of it is there to have fun. Like Teenage Mutant Ninja Space, if you ever get the chance to read the especially the third edition rules, it is actually an interesting read. They're they're trying very hard to simulate that style and to bring across that feeling of those types of stories. Yeah, like I still remember that's the game that basically has the section about sex that literally says sex isn't funny, so yep. characters don't get to have sex. Trying to get laid, really funny. Have them do lots of that. Don't, never let them actually have sex because that's too icky. Yeah, that's the game, and that'll give you an idea of what you know. So it's about it's about desperation and trying. It's about being a teenager. Lots of things you want to do, but you just can't. Yeah, and it's it around here. It's also the game we can never play again. Why not? Oh, um, <laughs> we we had a campaign. Mm-hmm. And you have to, to remember, anybody just tuning in, uh, Doak nowadays, he does stand-up. He's a writer. He's an actor. Mm-hmm. This is a game made for, for him. Yes, yeah, pretty much is, yeah. And, and he won. 
he won a role-playing game. Like, he won Teenagers from Outer Space, now and forever, amen. We can never, ever play again. He was just, he just did it so perfectly that there, it can never really top that. So therefore, it's just like that we're done. That's just not going to yes. happen. Okay, fair enough. We, we had we had a short campaign. He decided that uh, one of the other characters, one of the other guys was playing like his older brother. Mm-hmm. And he was the, the annoying kid brother. Uh-huh. And he did it so well, he won. It was it was almost horrifying. He 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 almost turned like like a wacky comedy into a saw movie about <laughs> how he dismantled his older to the point that the guy playing his older brother was horrified and amazed and at the end of that final adventure there was just like a moment of silence. Right. And then we packed up and left and that was like it. We we can never play again. It was it, it was, I wish it was filmed cuz words cannot describe how badly Doke won that game. <laughs> yep. No, no. I believe you. And luckily for them, it was Teenagers from Outer Space where you can't die. You can- that just made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to. He, I believe his character tried to kill himself at one point, but you're right because you can't die. He couldn't do yeah, it. Yeah, you can't die in Teenagers from Outer Space because, <laughs> duh, you can't die. Uh, you can just get knocked out, but that's as far as it goes. Yeah. All right, so... Let's let's talk about some of the other ones. So what are some other noteworthy anime simulation games? Or ones that try to simulate anime and may, maybe they fail. We can talk about games that fail as well. Actually, here, let's talk about that. So pick, tell me about an anime simulation game that pretty much is an utter failure. Because TFOS, you know, definitely did succeed to some degree. That's an utter failure? That does not do it very well. Oh, uh, we were talking about one, uh, Robotech. There we go. Robotech. All right. So Robo- So why would you say that Robotech, which, by the way, is one of the best-selling role-playing games of all time in terms of like sheer numbers. I think he shipped like a million volumes, him being Kevin Sembiata, Palladium Games. Why would you say that, that this like god-massive best-selling game of all time, one of them anyway, uh, is a failure? Well, it's because and, – and I remember this one because this was – the first game that really made me think about a game representing something like representing a story or a genre, Mm -hmm. it's because it doesn't accurately reflect the show. Right. Like the Palladium system is kind of like an old school D and D derivative system for anybody who's not familiar. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's a good system. It does a lot of stuff, but remember uh, coming out of those early D and D days, everything is very structured. Everything is, is is very. It's this. This weapon does one d eight damage, and that's that's that. Period. Mm-hmm. Yep. Palladium added criticals. If I roll a critical, it does two d eight damage, but it's still only two d eight. Yep. Yep. And you have, um, especially because Macross, it it's comes. It's one of the earliest uh, real robot shows. It's very soap op- soap op- operish. It's it. There's a lot of drama, a lot of like big crazy action mm-hmm. a structured system doesn't represent that very well especially a system that was basically designed to make D more realistic yeah you think about yeah, that that's... you took a game that was like designed to be super realistic and then you tried to apply it to anime yeah and it, it's it's not a bad game but it doesn't represent the show uh case in point battle pods have minimal amounts of damage they can take because in the show they go up like popcorn mm-hmm the problem is so do Valkyries and Destroids. 
Yep. The, Which the, have the good guy mecha. More. Also, at least the ones in the background go up like popcorn. Only the heroes, you know, mecha don't go up like popcorn. Yeah, and and it's because as part of that drama thing, the durability of your mech mm-hmm. was based more on your main characterness in the show than it was any qualities of your mech. Exactly. Yep, because your and, your mech is effectively an extension of you, right? So that makes sense. Yeah. And that was why, like, in the show, there's an episode where Chiron kung fu's three destroids into pieces in just a matter of seconds. Mm-hmm. In the game, he's doing, like, 1d4 points of damage to something that takes 250. Yeah, it literally, the role-playing game did a horrible job of simulating the show it was supposed to simulate. Really horrible. Yeah. Yeah, and it's because the system couldn't handle that, like, and this is where I, I mentioned that variable power thing. It couldn't handle that idea that the same piece of equipment in the hands of a quote-unquote better person, mm-hmm. or i.e. a main character, is just infinitely better than if, like, a dickweed picks it up. Yep, exactly. Yep. So, and that's the problem. You So you had this starkly realistic game, and you tried to use it to simulate an anime show, and it just did not work. Not at all. And I would say another example of this that tried to be anime but basically failed was Battletech. Battletech Mm. did not work at all as an anime role-playing game. It was was a hardcore science fiction robots blowing each other up game that stole, literally, anime art, basically. And that was kind of it. So it didn't really do a good job of simulating anime because it didn't have an anime feel, didn't have an anime style to it. It was just... Yeah, it just had some nice anime style art. That's as anime as it got. It just had more of the aesthetics. That was it. It it didn't even have like a like the the proper kind of background or draw. BattleTech when it first came out was basically Game of Thrones with giant robots. I'd say it pretty much stayed that way, kind of. Like I'm not familiar with. Once you get to the part where they introduce the clans, like I kind of I'm not real familiar with anything after that right yeah i don't know that much but i know a little bit about what happened from playing some of the uh games from some of the computer games and simulated games but i've never played the actual role-playing game uh, after that for what i know the clans came in and they took over part of it you could basically call the clans the white walkers if you're doing the game of thrones thing so they're the <laughs> they're the invaders from outside that show up that kind of knock over everyone's uh, you know everyone's fortress or whatever when uh, when you know when the dramatic right time happens and then they, as far as I know, they didn't really know what to do after that. <laughs> they did, it's like, okay, so yeah, the, the threat from beyond the pale or rim or whatever showed up and they did some, they did damage and, um, okay. Yeah. So now they're there too. Anyway, yeah, they, they, te- they team up for a bigger threat later on, but again, that's oh, kind of after that's after I, we all stopped playing kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know. I don't know the, the details, but I, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know that one that's, either. Okay. That's the best way to look at it. I never even thought about the uh, clans being the White Walkers, but you're absolutely right. Yep, yep. That's what they are. They're just that threat from beyond the pale. And they're rim as literally, or the wall, whatever. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's very much a Western science fiction game. It's very yeah. much Western feel, Western style. I mean, the thing that always struck me with Battletech, because I, you know, we're looking at the art and that, I desperately wanted it to be like the shows. But the truth is, it wasn't, not at all. I mean, even 
kind of like some of the real robot shows. I mean, you could say it's a little bit like, like the Votoms S stuff. And of course, Battletech's mechas were mostly taken from, um, crap, now I'm forgetting the name of the show. Dugram. Uh, Dugram. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Dugram. But even in Dugram, they don't, they don't work like they do in Battletech. <laughs> yeah. The, the mechs are actually function quite differently. They're more, they're somewhat similar, but what always got me about Battletech was the lack of hand-to-hand combat. Like, mm-hmm. in mecha anime, hand-to-hand combat is a huge thing. Like, that's why me- mecha always have, like, you know, hand weapons and things like that. Because it's cool, right? You know, the the Zacks have their um, heat axes, and the Gundams have their beam sabers. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And the, <laughs> um, you know, pretty much, and it doesn't matter. Every, you know, mecha anime, the main character's mecha always has a hand weapon of some kind. Or it can do kung fu and you can actually, you know, use like you know, ram into each other and you can beat the crap out of other mechs by hand. In Battletech, if I recall right, unless it's a unless it's a really heavy mech fighting a really light mech, almost impossible. Like you can basically kind of bing on them a little bit. But it really is a game about firepower. It's very American that way. Sorry Americans. But it really is it's about guns. It's about who's got the biggest guns and biggest missiles and blowing the crap out of each other. That's really what it's about. And that's yeah. not anime at all. No, the the idea of the, the mechs in Battletech, uh, I can't really think of a Japanese analog, but the idea was that the mecha design mm-hmm. was a super heavy vehicle that was uh, capable of carrying much heavier weight than like most tanks and stuff. Mm-hmm. And a Battletech mech is a big giant plodding thing. Like the, the old uh, idea that people say in, in real life, a giant robot would be stupid because it's just a big target in the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Battletech answers that by saying, yes, but we're strapping on way more armor than you could on anything else. Yep, that's true. And that's how they get it. But yeah, they're slow. Like hand-to-hand in, in Battletech is literally like the mech pulling back. And then like a second and a half after it pulls back, it takes two seconds to swing forward at you with a punch. Like... They're supposed. They are these big plotting things. The closest BattleTech mechs ever get to um, being anime style is the jump jets. Is the fact that they yeah. can they can do these jump jets and hop around and everything like that. At least the medium ones can, and some of the lighter ones. And that is re- that's somewhat anime esque. And of course, the the classic death from above, where you can like jump, you know, land on someone and maybe crush their cockpit and such. I mean, okay, that's a little bit anime-esque. I, you know, I can go with that. But overall, I never felt it simulated the feel of anime, really any anime at all. Like even Votoms, yeah. which I mentioned earlier, and that they're, they have basically roller skates on their mech's feet, which I thought was stupid when I saw it in Mech 10 at first, but now I understand, having watched Votoms, what they were <laughs> going for. Um, where, yeah, they basically have these, like, you know, wheels or sometimes treads on the bottom of the mech feet some of them for quick movements and for quickly dashing around and for sudden and it actually kind of works at least in votoms it works anyway yeah um but yeah so there's some of that but yeah the battle type mechs are just too big and plotting they really are yeah. they're, they're, they're they have more in common with the adats and the atsts the scout walkers from star wars than they do yeah. anything anime yeah, that's a good way of looking. Except if you knock them down, they don't just suddenly lose all their armor. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. 
All right. So are there another? Okay. So so those are two examples of ones where it didn't work. But are there other uh, noteworthy anime simulation games that you thought you were are worth mentioning, or you know, we should be talking about, Don? Ones that directly intentionally simulate anime. Yes. I can think of two classics. Okay. Uh, one of them I'm going to say is uh, Cartoon Action Hour Season 2. Now, that's a really interesting one because wouldn't that actually belong on the anime-friendly systems? Because it's technically meant to simulate American cartoons of the 1980s. It's not really meant to simulate anime. This is why I say Season 2. Okay. See, see, second edition, third edition are very similar. Like first edition was basically uh, GURPS for cartoons. Okay. Mm-hmm. That it was straight up just trying to represent the kind of stuff you'd see in cartoons. Whereas second and third, uh, they played up on the idea that it is a cartoon. So they became, again, more what we'd call narrativist. You're playing a show and you know it's a show. Mm-hmm. And you can use the mechanics to represent that. So, like I say, for instance, as your character does stuff and, like, bad dramatic things happen to them, Mm -hmm. they earn what's called oomph. Oomph are kind of like luck points. Okay. But you spend them to activate things. So this is why, like, in Voltron, they never brought the sword out right away and just finished it. You had to get slapped around a little bit because activating your massive super weapon costs oomph. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. For second editions, third editions, the current one. Second edition has two supplements that are supplement. They they are Japanese cartoons. They did uh, the Valentine's Day special, mm-hmm. which is kind of your more soap opery stuff, which not directly Japanese, but a lot of the shows that followed that borrowed from them or were translations back in the day. Right, makes sense. And they actually did a going Japanese supplement, which is specifically um for japanese cartoons it gets into 90s kind of stuff too Mm -hmm. but it does specifically detail that idea of uh literally japanese anime right okay makes sense so that's why specifically too i i I keep hoping they're going to do like updated ones for the third edition but they haven't yet but you can they're not it's another game where those two editions aren't that different right right so you could actually just do it. You play with those animated rules with third as well, and it would probably work. Yeah, because the it, it the rules themselves already accommodate a lot of it. It's mostly in plotting and presentation that mm-hmm. you 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 doctor. Because the eighties cartoons that we had, like GI Joe Transformers, were already borrowing from the Japanese. Well, yeah, some of that was the fact that they were actually directed often by actual Japanese animators and animated by Japanese. Yeah, and, and when we had uh, Wominio on, he talked about that working on like the original G.I. Joe, that mm-hmm. he was taking stuff from the Japanese cartoons of the time, because right. all, all the animators were looking at this going, why can't we do that? That's awesome. So that's, and yeah, then shipping them out to the companies that did the stuff they were modeling it on. So that's why you get that, that heavy feel, and mechanics-wise, uh, cartoon action hour, you don't have to adjust that much for it. Right. No, no, that makes sense. That, that makes total sense. I can see that. All right. And so you say the main thing that makes it feel like anime is the emphasis on, um, how can I put this? Uh, I don't want to say variable reality, but, uh, you know, it, it, it accepts this. It's happening within a setting or rules framework that allows for things to happen 
more cinematically than realistically. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's a, it's a rule setting that forces that to happen, <laughs> which I think is a good point. Actually, I think you because if you have the rules, I mean, okay, let's take a step back. Which is a good point, actually, because the rules often basically determine the feel and tone and everything of a game. So if the rules don't, like, say, um, Robotech, for example, do not actually enforce and simulate and encourage whatever you want, term you want to use, a certain style of play and feel and everything, it won't work. And yeah. Cartoon Action Hour bring, brings that, whereas obviously Robotech doesn't. Yeah. Okay. What's the other game you were going to bring up? Uh, it's probably the one that everybody nowadays thinks of, which is Big Eyes, Small Mouth. Yep, yeah, yeah, I figured as much. Um, which I guess is the closest thing we have to something that's both an anime-friendly system and an anime sim, and tell it might practically almost a well, it's not a Japanese import, but might as well be because um, it kind of try it's kind of everything. Yeah, it, it is. It's I remember years ago because Mechton comes out in the eighties. Mm -hmm. uh, Big Eyes, Small Mouth is more a nineties thing. It is very nineties. Yes. And I remember talking about this a million years ago, where you would point it out that it's funny that the top anime game of the 80s was Mechton, which is robots, mm -hmm. and then something called Big Eyes, Small Mouth becomes the top representation of anime games in the 90s. Mm -hmm. That it shows kind of that, for the audience in North America, that conceptual shift of what they think as an aggregate and exactly. yeah yeah exactly oh yeah yeah it's because by the 90s you know it people were thinking anime they were thinking sailor moon which is not robots they were thinking dragon ball they were thinking um at the very end of the 90s you'll get into naruto you'll get into uh, one piece you'll get into a whole bunch of adventure stuff and things that are just not giant robots because giant robots were an 80s thing and they'd kind of run their course by then yeah um, and Big Eyes, Small Mouth, as I recall, I only played it once or twice back in the day, and it does a decent job. Um, I remember Big Eyes, Small Mouth being one of those games, though, that the GM has to maintain a very, very tight rein on. It's yeah. kind of the opposite of Teenage Mutter Space in that the stats really do matter. And it's very, very easy because it only has like three stats, and you can have some... It's a tri-stat system, if I recall right. And yep. then you... Add, you add in all these extra abilities and everything. It's very easy to power game it, basically. Or, yeah, like super easy. Super easy. And it's very easy to end up with um, uh, you know, a team where one player is Sailor Moon and one player is Goku. And they're on the same team. And when I, I don't mean Sailor Moon operate Goku's level. I mean Sailor Moon as in, you know, I can maybe toss off a tiny fireball or a little magic, you know, burst or something like that and then you've got goku who can punch halfway through the planet and they're on the no, same team it's a bad example because in, in the because big eyes small mouth the that original system was used for the official sailor moon role-playing game oh that's true okay and when she gets like her second power up she does a lot of damage okay good point good point it's it's kind of like, to use the Dragon Ball example, one guy can make up uh, Goku after he comes back from the dead training with King Kai, mm -hmm. and everybody else in the group is Krillin from Dragon Ball. <laughs> right, there's that too, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it has the problem, it doesn't really, the system is very functional and very conflict-focused, mm -hmm. 
So it doesn't have a lot of the drama. It doesn't encourage a lot of the drama. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the the biggest problem with the mechanics, it's too easy to pick one thing that you're going to put all of your stuff in, and now your character's unstoppable yeah. in that thing. Yep. It has some of the worst min-maxing. Um, it's like the hero system, champions, and that. If you were really good with it, you could... It, hero system was made, thanks to many additions, to accept that it was going to be min-maxed, and there were there were balances built into it. Big Eyes, Small Mouth was early enough in its own evolution in that that it didn't have those balances built in. So there was nothing to stop characters from, yeah, just like putting everything into one or two. Basically, making a walking gun, for example. Like for the character yeah. to literally be just a walking cannon, that actually was a perfectly functional thing in Big Eyes, Small Mouth and would probably totally win the game. Yeah. And that's one of the problems with point-based systems, right? If, if there's an option for characters to put all their points in the, into the one stat that is just called win, they will. Yeah, there's it, it had the problem that to try to get that kind of fast-paced anime feel, it uses a really stripped-down set of rules. Mm-hmm. And because the rules are so simple and basic, that's what makes it so easy to, to take advantage of it. Yep, exactly. Like... Point, points-based systems, they work if there's reasons to spend points on a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Like that goes back to that that example running a Crema. Crema, you get points to, to buy traits and stuff. Right. But there's really no dump stat because the game takes into account things like combat, there's rules, interaction, you can game, you can strategize. If I'm going to play like the nice guy, I can strategize a way to do that mechanically Mm -hmm. so other people can do that to me as well so if i make up the unstoppable combat god i might be real easy into talking into stuff so there's there's nothing you can neglect Mm -hmm. so that's what you for for points-based systems that's kind of what's what spares them i think that's why even something like champions if we're playing a straight superhero fighting game Mm -hmm. i can make up enough villains that I, you can't skimp on on anything. The best example being everybody in a superhero game makes up guys who fly and fight and are invulnerable and have laser blasts and have absolutely no mental defense. Yep. So a teenager with a couple of points of mind control takes out your entire group. <laughs> oh, I've had that happen. I had that happen back in the day more than once. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. All you need is, yeah, one teen with mind control and the group is screwed. Yeah, and I don't know what it is about superhero games, but that's everybody. Everybody neglects that like mental side of things, and every superhero role playing game ever mm-hmm. that I've ever run, I just need a guy with mediocre level mind control, and now the group is pooched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, that's why, actually, I think maybe it's been a while, but I think back in the day, I generally had a rule: no psychics as well um, <laughs> for players. I mean, either because. Let's face it, this is supposed to be a super-powered wrestling game. As soon as you get players with psychic abilities in the game, everything goes to hell really quickly. It just just does not... It throws the game off. Um, I mean, unless everybody... Like, I have heard of people running, like, basically... You know, people run different styles of champions games, superhero games, obviously. And one of them was, you know, people run psychic games. Where, you know, everyone's kind of supposed to have psychic powers and such. And so in those games, having points in mental defense, having points in, like, ego blast, you know, the psi attack, basically, and all that. No, that made perfect sense. That's, that's, that's 
mind control, mental illusion. Good stuff. Yeah, that's good to have. But in a regular game where everybody's just like, you know, super-powered wrestlers, no, really bad, unless it's the <laughs> villain. And even then, as you said, if you have a psychic villain, the game just, oh my God, they'll just crush the group. Because whoever is the yeah. strongest member of the group will instantly instantly get their t- mind <laughs> taken over and then proceed to beat on the rest of the group. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that's why I did the opposite. I always encourage at least one person, like somebody take a mental guy. Right. The only problem is if you do that, though, this is the other reason why I dissuaded them from doing that is that I didn't want them because it's like, okay, so I'm running it because most a lot of superhero games are usually, usually mysteries in one form or another structured around that. At least the ones I pretended to run. So it's like, okay, so yeah, and um, you've got the first, you know, villain henchman who comes along okay the the psychic hero just reads his mind and finds out what's going on and oops oh well there goes half my plot all right yeah you know where the Uh, villain base is now i guess okay yeah okay you're going there you're gonna okay right you're gonna skip all the other stuff i planned sure okay um (laughs) that's what happens usually if there's a psychic in the group so yeah but hmm? you can work that two ways because you can have i know number one the dickweeds know things wrong. And number two, mm-hmm. I ran a game once that had that exact problem. Mm-hmm. Of all things, it was vampire. One guy had the, the telekinetic thing. And one of the bad guys' henchmen was following the group. And so they managed, they went to a restaurant. He followed them in and sat at another table. Mm-hmm. And the one guy concentrated to read his mind. Mm-hmm. And all I did was play that villain, that, that henchman, realistically. Uh huh. Because realistically, like you're not sitting there. There they are at that table. I'm going to bring them back to the master and blah blah blah. So they're scanning and what do I get? And the first thing is, <laughs> he's getting. Okay, you 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 lock in. You rolled perfectly. Okay, what's he thinking? You're getting Flintstones. Meet the Flintstones. They're the the. Oh, what the hell? Oh, the, the the. Oh, that weird little guy's looking at me. I'm, I'm going to pretend to read the menu now. He's reading many uh, prices are too right, high. F- right. Flintstones. Me, they're the damn it. That's gonna bother me. All damn. And I did that, and it 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 got a laugh because yep. that's funny. But but again, realistically, it's it's that key that powers like that. They can always misfire. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to play it out, because that same campaign we had another one where their their master got uh, dinged. He got knocked essentially into a, a coma and they had we need this info from them because they found out the bad guys had a connection and it was philo moonbeam was their the their he, he got turned into a vampire in the 60s mm-hmm. and he's basically like a, a stereotypical tommy chong and the guy with the mental powers mm-hmm. made mind contact to see if they could contact him in his coma and find out this info but when he did he got sucked into this guy reliving the 60s Uh oh and the rest of the the rest of the group had to find another psychic who could help them get into their buddy's head to pull him out of this guy's flashback so you can you can deal with it if you plan ahead i always liked it just so that again when your mindoc the mind taker shows up he doesn't just pump you know thump the whole group right yeah yeah that's true no, no, that, that that's a valid point. And as a more experienced storyteller and GM, I can I can think about yeah. There's an, actually a number of ways. Mostly the villain telling the henchman you know the wrong information because that way if the heroes if the villain knows that there's a psychic hero, yeah, they'll end up going to the wrong place or they'll fall into the trap. You know that kind of stuff. 
<laughs> and also, yeah, different. there's different levels of mind control. I mean, they don't know how deep in they are. I mean, surface thoughts, they're going to get meet the Flintstones. But if they can actually read the guy's mind, I mean, that's a different thing, too. Um, but, okay, yeah, that's that's a good point. Yep, psychics are... Psychics can be useful sometimes. I don't, I still don't like them, but whatever. You know, that's, to me, that like I said, to me, superhero role playing games were always super powered wrestling, so that's why. Right. Um. So were there? So those were the main ones you want to talk about for like anime simulation games. I think I think those are some good examples. I mean, there have been a number of narrow games over the years. Um, Ninja Crusade, for example, which is basically the Naruto role playing game. Um, <laughs> There's been what else? Um, there've been a couple of them that I'm su- suddenly blanking on them. Uh, well, there's what, what do there, you have on your list? There's there's kind of to that end. There's been a few like um, if you look at any of the different versions of the Fate system, mm-hmm. they have more than a few that are more than inspired by Japanese uh, pop culture kind of yep, thing. Yep. Um, there isn't there also one called Blue Rose, if I remember right. That's basically a shoujo role playing game. It it is, and it's it's the mechanics are kind of um, it's it's a third edition D and D derivative. Oh, okay, that's odd. It is the mechanics don't exactly play out like a typical shoujo story, mm-hmm. but the setting is because that's the game that made me kind of realize like how um how like magical schoolgirl shows work. Okay, can you explain? Yeah, because what they did, Blue Rose is supposed to be like a high fantasy setting. And again, they focused on the drama. Like, more more than, like, beating up the orcs and kind of thing. And it, it made me realize, because it's the kind of game... I I had a look at it, because it cheesed a lot of people off, because a lot of uh, uh, critics thought that it was, it was, you know, the stereotypical, you know, political correct force inclusiveness. Because when they talk about romance they're doing the the Japanese thing, that it's not just, again, the man on top, get it over with quick kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it made, me, it made me realize that that's kind of been a key to a lot of shoujo stuff from the beginning, like we said. And it's also one of the reasons why when you look at, like, the, the magical girl stuff... Right. What, what those stories actually are is their puberty. That's what a magical girl story is, especially after a, a what is it, a Madoka Meg-chan? Oh, you're talking, yeah, you're talking about, uh, not Madoka Meg-chan. You're talking about, oh, what was that called? Um, something, Magical Puella Madoka, something like that. Yeah, Madoka anyway, yeah. Which was... No, the- this is way before... This is way before. This is like from like the the like very early. 80s. Oh, you're talking about the original. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, that would be the original. What was the original? Oh my god, I can't remember the, what the original Magical Girl show was. Um, the original, the one that's considered the original is a uh, Little Witch Sally. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yep. There's Sally. Um, but, but there's ones that Meg- come after that. Yeah. So go. Yeah, because Meg Chan was kind of the first one that that looked a little more like the post-Sailor Moon stuff that we'd see here. Right. Because if you remember, that was one of the problems when they did Sailor Moon in English. It had a lot of, you know, questionable sexual deviancy in it. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Meg Chen was kind of the first one that that did that. And like I say, going through, like, the the Blue Rose and how they, they, again, it's very shoujo in, in its setting and themes... 
Mm-hmm. The, I realized the magical girl thing, it represents puberty, because puberty is when you start having all those weird feelings. Yep. And that's what a lot of these shows are about. And that's why you get kind of the weird couplings and the weird love triangles and that. And Sailor Moon kind of was all of that. It was all the magical girl kind of tropes and conventions in one place. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. And that was a running theme. So, for instance, um, they had the uh, the Bishojo character... The, the 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 handsome young man, but they were the villains, right? And two two of two of the villains in like the original series, they they were they were gay. Yeah, yeah, they were. And then that became that that was a theme too, because if you remember, I think it's the second or third season. They think that Jupiter might be gay because she has uh, an unhealthy attachment to one of the uh, to to one of the uh, the two uh, outer planetary ones they introduce. Mm-hmm. And that's always been a theme, and then the idea that there's there's like guys perving on them that goes back to like Meg Chan, the one lieutenant that the bad guy sent to catch her, was was this like lustful creep, and that became part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's because again, it's that idea when you hit puberty, you're having all these weird feelings, like how you feel about different people starts changing, and you don't necessarily know why. Mm-hmm. And that's what that represents. That's why you have kind of questionable sexuality and questioning sexuality because that's what happens at puberty and that's why mm-hmm. you have these like creepy perv villains in that because especially if you're a young girl when you start coming of age guys show this weird interest in you they didn't before and it can be disturbing and yep that's that's why the magical girls usually age up mm-hmm. when they transform because it represents adulthood. It represents you. And they, they always find out they're like a princess with destiny. Because being adult means that you have to take on these responsibilities. Yep. That's true. It's it's not about you. You gain new abilities when you grow up. Like you can drive and see X-rated movies. And and stuff like that. And that, like I say, it's, it's, it's weird. That was the game that kind of put me on that track to notice that. Because it deals with a lot of those things. Because in the game, mm-hmm. the main kingdom... Uh, is very open, very what we would call progressive. Right, yep. Yeah. So the idea of marriage can happen between all kinds of different people in different ways. Right. And kind of next door to them is a more traditional kind of conventional one. Because that's their trees. That's one of the things that they, they don't like. Mm-hmm. But the weird thing is those more kind of uptight conservative types aren't presented as the villain. They're not. There's another nation that are your more typical sword and sorcery villains. They're presented as people with a different point of view because, again, it's that focus on drama that creates more of that drama. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And as, and as a participant, and again, going to that, that so, shoujo thing about, you know, questioning stuff as you get more older, more mature, see more of the world, it plays into that because, again, because neither side is presented as entirely right or entirely wrong – and that's where the drama comes in and that's where the debate comes in. And again, that was what a lot of these dramatic Japanese stories mm-hmm. kind of start doing in the 70s. Like the the, uh, the Jose stuff does that with relationships. The Seinen stuff does that with the more like kind of classical heroic things like like violence mm-hmm. and and duty and all that. Yep, and yep. Like I say, it, it it's... The mechanics don't necessarily represent that in the Blue Rose game because it's basically third edition D&D. Right. 
But the setup and the themes in the presentation are very, very shoujo. Huh. Okay. That makes sense. I, I, like I said, I to me, you know, it being a third edition D&D and shoujo, that's a huge disconnect. But, yeah. <laughs> but I can see how, almost a Battletech level disconnect, but I can see how <laughs> they put, worked really, really hard through feel and tone and background to make you understand it so that you could kind of still pull it off, which I guess is one way to do it. Yep, and plus in the game, Magical Talking Animals is a character species. Well, of course it is. Yeah, because it, 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 it's a shoujo story. It has to be. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's, yeah, yeah, okay. I, I No, no, that, that makes sense. But yeah, Blue Rose is one of the ones I want to bring up because we're mostly talking about shonen seinen stuff, but I thought it was worth mentioning something like Blue Rose that is actually trying to simulate the, the girl stuff instead. Um, even if it doesn't quite succeed as well as it could, um, would... I, I would say it, it does because again, it's it's the the shojo stuff, especially when you get to kind of your deconstructed magical girls after after like Sailor Moon. Mm-hmm. The action scenes kind of break up the story. Yeah, <laughs> like they they get on your nerves more than anything else because you are watching this great character exchange and then. Bah! I'm a monster. No, I want to see how this other thing yeah, turns yeah, out. Yeah, and I know how the fight's going to go. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. The fight. Yeah, but the fight's there. What's there to sell the toys? So just sit down and shut up. It's, it's paying <laughs> yeah. for the show. <laughs> Basically. Yep. So. All right. So let's move on then to um, anime friendly systems. Why don't we move on to the next category? Now, what 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 I think I the anime friendly system I brought up before, of course, is uh, which I we both consider the gold standard is the DC Heroes role playing game. You've uh, actually brought up two. Oh, well, that's true. But we'll go with the DC Heroes role playing game first. Um, why you know why am I saying it's the gold standard, Don? You you, <laughs> you I think you can give them a, the better argument. Go. DC Heroes does a really good job, and this is why, again, that idea of kind of that floating power level, Mm -hmm. DC does that brilliantly. Because it's a game system that was written to represent Silver Age, like Superman comics, and the the 1980s post-crisis, more, you know, dark, gritty, no, this is serious business comics. Mm -hmm. And they did a good job. You mentioned second and third edition are pretty similar. They have... They added rules that let you adjust mm-hmm. different things. And it works good to simulate because it really does represent that idea of the hero getting their second wind. Oh, yes, it does. Yeah. Um, we should explain, actually. the In DC Heroes, they have a thing called hero points, which are, are functionally very similar to experience points in most games, except there's a catch. Hero points can be spent to influence the story and, and in the game itself. Um, mm-hmm. So you earn hero points for doing heroic things and such, not just beating guys up, but for doing interesting things. And then you can use those points in different ways. And depending on how you want to set things up, I mean, you could use them for a simple things. Like, uh, for example, if your character need, really needs something, you know, like they they dash into a store and that store, there's really something they need to buy. They could spend hero points to, and that store happens to have that thing. It's like, oh, that would cost you 10 hero points. It's like, okay. And okay, so now they've you know they've now got that thing that they really need or whatever. If you know if they need luck or coincidence, then they can also spend it for any 
to boost any stat. Uh, some depending on the level of reality you've put into the game, it might only be to double the stat, or it might be to boost the stat up to Superman levels, depending again on how, <laughs> how what your what kind of uh, limits you put in the hero points. In, in fact, the hero point limits often determine a lot about how close to reality things are. Like if you can only boost yeah. a tiny bit, you're sticking with reality. If you can, if you can like make yourself into Superman for like two or three scenes, well, that's obviously not real. And it goes, it works like that. Also, DC Heroes has um, the hero points are the biggest one, I'd say. Um, also, I would say their attribute system as works as well because they've got mental. Uh, mental, sorry, physical, mental, and psychic attributes, basically. Um, and yeah. this is very important because this allows you to have combat on, you can have physical combat, you can have psychic combat, but you can also even have, um, they call it spiritual combat, but spiritual can also double as social combat as well. So mm -hmm. you could use those attributes for social combat. So unlike... Or, or even just social influence. So, for example, a character in DC Heroes can have a massive charisma that's basically letting them sway huge audiences. And that's totally possible. But the weird thing is that they can even they can have massive charisma, but they can still be very weak-minded in other ways and vulnerable to other yeah. things as well, which is kind of neat. That's a neat, neat aspect of, of DC Heroes. So you can use it to simulate almost anything. Um, and I do mean anything. I mean, I've used... DC Heroes to simulate us for a Star Trek role-playing game. I used it for a Magical Girls campaign that I ran. I used it for, actually, proper superheroes. I'm trying to think what other ones I did with it. I don't think I ever used it for a mecha game. Oh, no, I did use it for a mecha game once. In fact, I used it for a Gundam game, in fact. I remember using it for that. Um, yeah. And I've used it for a whole bunch of different things. And I got to admit, it, it takes a little bit to understand the system, it is one of the more interesting systems for figuring out exactly how it works. But once you kind of got the idea, it is astoundingly flexible and a really amazing system. It really is. And it works great for, especially for anime style games, thanks to the hero points. Yeah. And, and they, they, they game that up too, because you can pick maneuvers when you're doing an action. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. So you can do like what they'll call like, say, um, like an all-out attack, mm -hmm. which makes you easier to hit, but you have a better chance of connecting yourself. And yep. they have rules. They have rules for things like you can push an attribute. So if I need to lift a car, I can make a roll where I attempt to raise my strength temporarily. If I make it, I get to add points. If I fail, I have like burnout and I lose my strength, mm -hmm. meaning that you know I strength myself. And you spend hero points on that kind of thing too. And that's what adds to the effect because it makes that kind of thing gameable that if I'm facing down that big ultimate villain mm -hmm. and I know his stats are way beyond mine, do I want to push my like dexterity to get in there first and spend hero points on that? And then when I hit, when I'm moving in, I'm going to use an all-out attack, which will make me vulnerable if I miss that first shot. And I can spend hero points on that. And then I can save a few hero points for last-ditch defense in case, like, I fail that first time he hits me. And it makes it... It adds to the feel because it becomes an event in the game. It's, it's, it's not like the problem you had with, say, the big eye small mouth where I just put all my points into one stat and now that's just awesome. Mm -hmm. I can game... Based on the things, do I want to 
push for advantage in one aspect of this action and gain disadvantage in another to see if I can pull it off better. It keeps the player themselves more involved and it adds to that feel because now it feels like that big tense moment in the show that's all dramatic because there will be actual mechanical consequences of the decisions that I make. It's not just I'm using my high stat. Yep, exactly. Oh, and also another interesting thing is that they have a somewhat unique approach to combat and initiative, if you remember right. So DC Heroes is one of those games where everyone has to declare what they're doing before you actually do it. What happens is you declare an order from slowest to fastest, and then you the actions happen in terms of fastest to slowest. So mm-hmm. the fastest people can see what the slower people are doing and react to them, but not vice versa. And so that creates an incredible uh, cinematic result in a lot of ways because the characters mm-hmm. kind of, they can, there's a tactical element of knowing what the enemy is knowing what other people are doing and reacting. If you have two fast character, faster characters dealing with a slower character, they can kind of like combine their attacks and they can do all kind. It has all kind of uh, combat aspects that you don't see in most other role-playing games. that isn't there in the D and D style of play. You could yeah. incorporate this in a D and D style of play if you want to. Oh, also we didn't mention one other thing. Villains have hero points too. Yeah, and the players don't know how many hero points the different villains have as well. So, and this also <laughs> this is one of the things that really simulates. Them. So, go back to the giant, you know, giant robot stuff, for example, okay, or, or whatever Dragon Ball type stuff. So, the reason why in a DC hero games the the giant robot or the martial artist would like beat on each other for a while, the good guy and the bad guy, or good guys and bad guys, is that basically what they're among the things they're doing is they're whittling down the other guy's hero points because people often in the game use small amounts of hero points to like absorb damage as well as the game is going on. And then once you know that the guy can't just nullify your attack by spending a whole bunch of hero points, that's when you form the blazing sword or do the Kamehameha and take the guy out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it really produces, the rules really produce an anime style result. Even though yeah. it was meant for... DC Comics superhero role-playing, it still works amazingly well as an animated role-playing game. Like, the best, probably, you can find. Yeah. Um, by the way, DC Heroes, just to tell the complete story, would later be... Uh, they'd lose the DC license. Mayfair Games, I believe it is, or someone similar, would release Blood of Heroes. It became a, a later edition. Basically, a generified version of it that's very, very 90s in the style, but still has all the same rules, basically. They just change a few little things here and there. Equally awesome. It has two editions, if I recall right. Then someone at DC Comics decides that no, no, everything related to DC Heroes, even the rule system, actually belonged to them. And as an end, end result, uh, Blood of Heroes got shut down. And so now you can only really buy it on the collector's market. So if you do want to play this game, yeah, unfortunately, it's a, it's a little tricky. You're more likely to find a pirated PDF if you want to actually check it out. I don't even think it's available on Drive Through RPG, is it? I don't think they legally can. Yeah, I don't think it is. I think there's 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 still still a debate, but you can you can find DC Heroes Second Edition. You can still find for not crazy prices. Mm-hmm. Third Edition, you are not going to find for like under an insane amount for the first for the basic for the basic book. I don't know why. Right. I think it just had a super low print run. I have a copy of third, so I'm I'm pretty happy about that. Um, well, not the super low print run, yeah, because it came out 
in the 90s because the third edition is basically the death of Superman. It came out, it's got all yeah. the death of Superman stuff in it. So that'll tell you when it came out just slightly after the death of Superman saga in the mid to late 90s. Um, and then, which no one remembers because it was just a big publicity stunt, but whatever. The key point is, is that, and then it, they lost the license sort after that. And that's where you get Blood of Heroes. So I've also got a copy of Blood of Heroes. Uh, what, what edition is it? They call it, the version I've got is called Special Edition because they did a Blood, I think it's Second Edition, basically, of Blood of Heroes. Because First Edition, and then they had one or two supplements and they combined them all into what they called Special Edition. And I believe the Special Edition of Blood of Heroes that I've got is, I think if I recall right, it's insane, the price if you try to buy it on eBay or or one of the used bookstores. Like it's it's insane, like a couple hundred dollars basically for the book. Yeah. And it's a good thing I've got an actual copy. Um, but yeah, you're not going to find it for less. I'd, I'd have to check, but yeah, it's it's crazy. It's it's really weird, like the with the pricing for these games. But but if you can find a copy of it, like I said, there are a lot of like bootleg PDFs floating around on the internet. If you really go looking, there might I think there's even might be a site that has the PDFs. So the earlier ones, because they're basically like, well, as long as we're not selling it, DC won't care. So they I think they take that at. I think that's true. Um, I'm not linking to it in the show notes just in case, though. You're going to have to go looking yeah. for it on your own, but I believe I've seen it. Um, and so, yeah. DC Heroes may be the best anime role-playing game ever. Uh, even, though, even, though yeah. it's, even though it's unintentional. Even though it wasn't meant for that, it works astoundingly well. So, But what's another anime-friendly role-playing system? I've got another really good classic example, and it's one you've mentioned, and it ties in with the idea of the games that go back and forth. Okay. And that is Tunnels and Trolls. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's hear it. The Japanese edition of it, the mechanics aren't any different, but they did it like a big comic book. Shouldn't this belong under my anime reversals category, not not under anime-friendly systems? But okay, sure. It it kind of does. It kind of it kind of goes both ways because what ended up happening is Tunnels and Trolls is a super stripped down version of 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 a game system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Are you talking the original or the anime edition? Either one. They're 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 all they're very similar. Like the the Japanese edition mostly just changed the look. Yeah. Like I said, they did it as a comp book. The mechanics still work. I think it got popular because it's not even exactly a D&D derivative because it works so different. Basically, in Tunnels and Trolls, when the party encounters the monsters, everybody in your group declares your attack, and each attack has a certain amount of dice that it does. Mm-hmm. And we basically add all of the group's dice together into one giant roll. Mm-hmm. And then the monsters do kind of the same thing into one giant roll. So it's a really, I'm not sure what to call it. It really is kind of its own thing. Yeah, it's it's very odd that way. I mean, so what weapons your characters have to determine how many dice they add to the roll. And then you kind of sort out based on cinematics or something like that, exactly how many, how characters get heard and what happens, I guess. Well, it goes down the line. Basically, whoever rolls highest wins that that round and does damage. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain order for who takes damage. So, like, fighters take damage first, magic users take it last. Right. 
and he essentially just dish out a point of damage to everybody in the group when you get to the end. If there's any left over, you start back at the beginning and you do that until all of the damage inflicted that round has been added to all the participants on the losing side. Mm -hmm. Which is so it's, odd. It really is. It's there, there's like I say, there's I haven't seen any even like the uh tiny D six system. It's not like this at all. Yeah, that is and I can't say that that really simulates anime at all. I mean, anime, if anything, is very tactical. Especially fantasy it, anime. It doesn't, it doesn't, because remember a lot of Japanese stuff will also have those big weird mass combat scenes. That's true. That part's true. It's especially when you get to like the 80s. That, And I think that's why Tunnels and Trolls took off in Japan. It's crazy popular there. Mm -hmm. Is because... It looks like a lot of those, especially when you get into the eighties kind of cartoons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where if you look, you look at Macross, where when the fight starts, it's just shit happening all over your screen. There's no rhyme or reason to any of it. Right. And that was a popular way of filming like Japanese cartoons up until I think till you start getting near the late eighties, like where they they started making it more personal, more structured. But yeah, a lot of the the early eighties stuff when the fight starts, it's just things moving all over your screen. Like, Yeah, yeah. It's chaos, basically. They're trying to simulate chaos of battle. Yeah, and that's kind of how Tunnels and Trolls is, because it's just a bunch of dice hitting the table, and then let's see what happens kind of thing. Yeah, but to me, that doesn't simulate, like, the like anime is very much still about, like, heroism and such, especially the way it's portrayed. That might That's really good for simulating the guys in the background, but our heroes should be putting in individual effort and um, doing things individually that, you know, and influence the battle and back and forth. And that doesn't do that at all. That it's it, very group. I can't understand why it would even be popular. It, it, it does do that in a way that looks exactly like the cartoons. Cause remember in the cartoons, the big fight starts, the hero mech summons up his twin, like, you know, blazing swords and charges in and like the support mech fires all of its missiles and then stuff blows up. There's there's really no it structure or detail or anything. And this all goes on and when the smoke clears, it's just like the hero and like the main villain left standing kind of thing. And that's how Tunnels and Trolls plays out because everybody's getting that damage spread amongst them. Mm -hmm. And it looks and this is where I say this is why I think it was so popular in, in Japan because the way it plays out really does look like those old hyperkinetic, like, 80s cartoons. Right. Okay. I guess I could see that. I mean, we should note that D&D &D itself was actually popular in Japan. It was actually, like, crazy popular at one point. Um, and so, in multiple editions, actually. There's, a, there's an anime edition you can find, basically. Not official anime, but basically there's a version, especially of D&D second edition that exists. You can, find you can find it online. Some people have translated, fan translated it. That's all the art is anime-style art. It, it is, and then that's the same kind of thing like the Tunnels and Trolls one. Mm -hmm. It looks Japanese, because again, they do very high production values on their games. They, they did right from the beginning. Right, yeah, yeah. So it looks out, but it's still D&D. &D. They didn't change the mechanics or any of that at all. Mm -hmm. Just kind of the aesthetic. And then some of the adventures will be laid out and paced a little different. It's like if you go back to classic Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, 
the British adventures, you could tell, because they focused a little more on setting and story than the American ones did, and the Japanese ones are kind of like that too, but it's still D&D. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Just with, with bigger eyes and speed lines kind of Yeah, thing. exactly, yeah. Well, and you're supposed to... And the, presumably the players are imagining the anime aspects of it, if they do. Um, remember, I, this will shock people, but not all Japanese are anime and manga fans. There are a fair number yeah. of them that don't give a shit about that, you know, big eye, small mouth stuff. Like to them, it's just background or it's something that they might have liked when they were kids. In fact, I would say that's the majority of Japanese. Um, sorry to break your hearts, weebs. But the uh, truth is, is that, you know, Japan is not some kind of like anime loving paradise or something like that. For most people, anime and manga are still kids stuff um, or it's something it's something that they were into until they got a you know actual life. And then they then they go from there. Um, yes, there are tons of anime and manga fans in Japan. Absolutely. But Japan has 125 million people and I can bet you less than 25 million of those are actual anime fans. <laughs> Way well, less. It, it kind of depends too. Cause like we said at the beginning of this, hmm. it depends how you define anime. Well, that's true. That's very true. That, that the stuff that people think of here hmm. in Japan is, is usually seen as yeah. Kids stuff. Yep. But then every now and then somebody will do like kind of weird office work or soap opera show that in Japan isn't really considered anime. It it would be the equivalent of like, say, King of the Hill or the Venture Brothers here. Yeah, it's a cartoon, but it's not like a real cartoon. It's one of these other things. Japan too. There's no question on that. That kind of thing definitely happens still in Japan. Um, they do still have stuff that's meant for a more of an adult audience that, that pops up and they're still here. There's still a lot of, uh, we'll say middle-aged guys who still worship Fist of the North Star <laughs> and they don't worship it as a, as a kid's thing. <laughs> it, it was like, that is the most awesome manly thing ever <laughs> to them. Like, I mean, you walk into, <laughs> uh, you walk into a pachinko parlor and you run by the Yakuza and you're looking around and you got all these gangsters around and the walls are just lined with fists of the North Star pachinko machines. <laughs> um, so, or maybe a few Jojo's Bizarre Adventure ones. Um, but again, the point is, is that it does depend. Like there are some stuff that, especially oddly, yeah, older stuff that people still look at as being more mature, quote unquote. Uh, yeah. Well, it's like that's true. Um, so, all right. So moving right along then, um, let's talk about Japanese imports then. Uh, so, um, so okay. for Japanese imports, you already mentioned Tenra Bansho Zero. We should probably talk about it. So tell the audience about Tenra Bansho Zero. It's, 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 and you can get an English, like my copy is mm-hmm. an English copy. It's very Japanese. It illustrates kind of the total difference in mindset between like uh say north american and japanese mm-hmm. gaming it's this weird pseudo fantasy techno magic mm-hmm. setting that's more or less like feudal japan if they had developed like bioorganic magic power right. mechs sounds awesome which, which is it, it in in the literal sense of the mm-hmm. word in a lot of cases and again, it's, it's, this is kind of a thing. There was a lot of like anime in the mid to late eighties that kind of followed mm-hmm. similar themes. If, if you, if you combine Ninja Scroll and Giver, it's basically the, the setting. Okay. That's yeah. Okay. And, 
And the way the game is is set up, the way that you play, they do stuff like it's it's an interactive event. They actually mm-hmm. describe when they're talking in the game master section for setting up that of getting like say renting a room at mm-hmm. a coffee shop. And it's it's the game is presented as a social event, not as right. as a game. But that part's hyped up. Um, the mechanics of it are based on mm-hmm. a karma system. That it's very based, it, it has a lot to do with, with Buddhist mm-hmm. philosophy. That your character can spend points to do things. And it almost works like hero mm-hmm. points in DC. But if I spend points to, to for like those boosts to fight the enemy, I gain karma. And karma is a bad thing. Karma is a bad thing. Yeah, it represents your character's connection to the world. Mm-hmm. Kind of their earthiness as you it, it builds up. You can have a maximum of one hundred and eight points. Okay, because that's the number of Buddhist hells. Right. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and as you do things, you're trying to burn off your character's karma as well, and you do that by doing spiritual things and selfless things, mm-hmm. and things that show like your disconnection with the world. Whereas spending points to boost my power to take out a main villain. Hmm is a worldly thing. It shows kind of my connection to the material world. So I earned karma points for doing that, for doing that power-up. Right. And I can burn them off later with, say, good deeds and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the basis of it. And the way the system works is you have something that's very similar to hero points called the Aiki chips. Mm-hmm. And these are tokens. They work like XP because at the end of the game, any that you have left, you can put into, like, raising stats and stuff. Right, right. You spend them during the game to do things. They work like hero points. I can spend them for bonuses. That might earn me karma. I can spend them to activate certain powers that require all of that. The way you get them is by being entertaining, essentially. Okay, that's a good idea. Because the game master alone doesn't hand them out. The players hand them out to other players. Mm-hmm. So if you do something like super awesome and everybody laughs, they'll give you two or three like chips. Like that's whatever. pretty good. Okay. Yeah, and that's how. And then you can spend them like if two characters are having a dramatic scene and you want your character involved, you can give them each a chip as like a bribe to let your character into the scene, kind of thing. <clears throat> okay. And the game really focuses on that the interaction of the players more than the characters. That's interesting. It's not just like a narrativist thing like we think of it. It is presented as, as a social experience. It's, it's mm-hmm. like I said, they recommend it's like a night out with the guys that you would have a game of this. Right, right. Wow, that sounds really interesting. I think that would be a fun experience to play that. Mm. And a nightmare for the game master to set up, but... <laughs> well, yeah, you'd really have to read through the rules and... I think you would. You'd also need a game master that kind of understands um, Buddhist philosophy and the Japanese perspective a little bit as well. You because, would, which in Japan isn't the problem, but here, yeah, uh, might be more of a problem than you think these days. Oh. I mean, you know, Japanese culture is shifting, right? They like yeah. like everywhere in the world, they're becoming less religious and less connected to religion in general in their lives. Um, so again, there are probably less and less people that like, uh, you know, they, they probably know as much about Buddhism as I think your average, like teenager knows about Christianity these days. 
right, uh, right. here in North America. I mean, um, which truth according to surveys that is not a lot <laughs> they, they, unless you go to a Catholic school, in which case it's still rammed down your throat. But anyway, oh my God, is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's their last dis- desperate ditch attempt to avoid disappearing entirely. Pretty much. It's like they, we have to brainwash the next generation. But anyway, um, I, I sound incredibly biased. So we'll go with that. Um, There's a song about that. <laughs> I'm sure there is. Um, written by someone who went to a Catholic school, no doubt. Well, Tom Lehrer. I don't know if he did or not, but... Uh, it sounds like he could be a good Catholic boy. Um, <laughs> good Catholic or Jewish. Either way, it'll work. Um, so, the, I guess the point is is that, uh, yeah, it would be... There would be a, some cultural challenges, but I think overall... I, and I think that idea of presenting the game as more of a social event, I think, is not a bad idea. I think right. that's, that's... In fact, that's something that maybe for... Especially even for more modern audiences might actually present like work better especially if you had people who are not gamers playing yeah i mean it kind of reminds me in a lot of ways of like the old uh white wolf stuff vampire the masquerade uh werewolf the apocalypse you know that kind of thing the world of darkness stuff which i the idea there at least became eventually to try to portray things much more in the light of a uh, a social event you know, this because this was stuff that nor, that non gamers could kind of get their hands on. Oh, we're playing vampires, okay. And so, as an end result, you ended up getting a lot of more casual players playing, and that helped the game. Actually, that helped the game a lot. Made it a lot more prop- popular. Made them a lot more profit, um, and brought in a lot of new people into role playing. So that's not a bad thing. Yeah, th- this one takes it kind of a step further. Mm-hmm. I've seen other games like Western games that take that approach of making it more of a social event than a game. Mm-hmm. Like the quag system is, is really big on that. What's the quag system? Uh, the quick-ass gaming system. Okay, I've never heard of it before. It's, it's a really kind of stripped-down gaming system where basically your uh, the, the, the points, the, bonus, the hero points, XP, and that that you earn, they call them yum-yums. Okay. Because basically the Game Master, if you do something good, gives you like an M&M. Okay. And then that counts as like your your hero points and you spend them during the game to do stuff. Right. So I give you a candy and then if you want to do something to like say Doke's character, you can give Doke the candy and then he gets to... But then if you eat them all, you go through all your hero points and you have to earn more in the game. Oh my god. And it's, it's, it's meant to be like back in the day it'd be what they used to call like a beer and pretzels game. Mm-hmm. It's it's that, but more because again, it focuses more on the interaction of the players than the the characters. And yeah, Tenor Show Zero really kind of excels at that idea. Huh. Okay. That is definitely a game. Maybe I'll maybe I'll track down a copy for fun just to just to check it out. They're surprisingly not hard to find. Is it still in print or maybe print on demand at this point? I don't think it's still in print. My copy's an old one. It's a slipcase that has the the rule book. Hmm the uh kind of the source book mm-hmm. and a comic book that details the setting right and hmm. it it weighs a ton it doesn't it's one of the, i it's one of those books that you look at it it's not very big it's smaller than standard book size right but you pick it up and it's like thump this thing weighs 10 pounds what the hell is it made out of yeah because they're using super high quality paper yeah with probably high gloss and everything yeah the uh the groups fourth edition books are kind of like that as well yeah this is more so this again this looks like uh 
um if you've seen like the uh the the animation kind of collections mm-hmm. like the or the art like in japan these are pop they do some of them here but like the coffee table books that right. like an artist will put out or a studio will put out mm-hmm. it's more along the lines of one of those like i said super high production values right okay okay I will, I'll see, I'll, I'll take a look into it and I'll put a link in the show notes for what I can find about it anyway. All right. So on that note, actually, I think we should probably bring this one to a close. Um, I, we've already talked about the major Japanese reversal, which of course is Tunnels and Trolls. Um, and yeah. the, there's a D&D one as well. Are there any other Japanese reversal games that we be, that we could talk about? I don't think so. Are there? Yeah, I, I the, there, there doesn't seem to be very many that kind of do that back and forth. Mm-hmm. The uh, the gun, rare. yeah, the one Gundam game you were talking about the, the with Artel Sorian is kind of the really the 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 big example of that. Yeah, because I think that they think they used the Artel Sorian rules and they released it in Japan and then they tried to translate it back, but something happened with the rights and so they didn't finish the project. But yeah. it does exist in Japanese, so some fans have begun, have translated at least some of it. Yeah, as, as I recall, it's it's very similar to the standard Artel Surya like Mechton Cyberpunk rules, but a little different. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. Because there is an official Gundam role-playing game in Japan. Surprise. There, I think there's more than one. I think you're right, because there's the one that you sent me way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Like 20 there's plus an, years ago. Yeah, there's an advanced edition of it, mm-hmm. which I've never seen, and I do think there's a newer one. That came out not really recently, but five or ten years ago. I, I think it's probably like um, DC or Marvel role playing games, where what's going on is is that depending on is that every now and then the 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 rights will lapse, and someone else will buy the rights and do their thing with it. Yeah, yeah. And Gundam was popular enough because I know back in the eighties there were a couple Gundam uh, tabletop role playing games. Yeah, uh, there was a company that produces all the the produced anime tabletop games for multiple ones actually for almost any anime you can name. There that has a, there's a tabletop game for that was they were kind of like Steve Jackson games. They're like mini games, but they're all like anime based. Yeah, and there there were a few. I think there was a, a Gundam tabletop war game proper. Yeah, there is. There's a couple of them, I think. Yeah, because there was a few of that Votoms. There was a few. The one that everybody remembers, the first one was a Dugram one. Yep. The Battle of Something Ridge. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. If I can find... There's a site that actually has them all listed. Uh, if I can find it again. I, I, I was just reading it like last year, I think. I, I sent you the link, obviously. Um, yeah. If I can find that link again, I, I think I have it somewhere. I'll, um, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, that about all these Japanese tabletop role-playing games that exist. Um, anyway, on that note, um, so if any of you have any, you know, anime simulation games that, or style games or import games and that, that you want to talk about, please drop by Obey the DNA, um, and leave a note in the comments section. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject. Um, it's again, we've barely scratched the surface on this. There's actually tons and tons of games we haven't talked about and we could probably go on for another couple hours if we did, but unfortunately it's getting a little late for us and some of us have to get to bed. So on that note, um, 
Thanks, Dawn, once again for bringing your thoughts and perspective to the podcast. And thank you, listener, for dropping by and listening to us talk about anime-style role-playing games for the last little while. Hopefully, you've maybe got some memories of anime-style games yourselves, or it's given you an idea of something like DC Heroes that you should definitely check out and and run if you are thinking of running an anime-style game. On that note, good night, all, and remember, goddamn Go Whopper 5. Bye. (laughs) You know, people are going to start thinking we're, like, working for Mayfair in secret. We mention DC Heroes so often. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more, or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes, or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!